1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection.
2: Hi everyone, I'm Brooke Burke. I'm Megan King-Edmonds. And I'm sex and intimacy
3: coach Leela DeVille. And we have a podcast called Intimate Knowledge. Mm.
2: That's what this show is about. Sex. 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 But it's so much more than that It's about the ups and downs in your relationship, your sex life It's about
3: overcoming heartbreak and infidelity It's about understanding intimacy and what makes you happy And it's about everything you want to know But you might be too embarrassed to ask We're giving you intimate knowledge Listen to Intimate Knowledge on iHeartRadio app On Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Find us (laughs)
1: Hey, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Well, it's just about Valentine's Day here in the United States, and that means heart-shaped boxes of chocolate everywhere you go. Especially now that you can't buy those sweetheart candies. Although, I'm always shocked people liked those anyway. I mean, other than just for... I guess, novelty of a candy that has a message on it. And along with all of these heart-shaped boxes of chocolate come the ads of women falling heads over heels for chocolate as if willpower goes out the window for women when chocolate gets introduced into any given situation. We become wolves. Wolves. <laughs> and I have to say, I love chocolate, but I don't really crave it too often I have friends that do, though, especially when they're sad or on their period, both. And it got me to wondering if there is any truth to this stereotype. Luckily, we have a classic episode looking into just that. Enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline, and I'm Kristen. Uh, today we're talking about uh, a favorite topic of mine. And I was preparing for the topic of chocolate last night, Kristen, by shoving chocolate Easter eggs one after another into my face. Because every year, my mother, I'm 30, my mother makes uh, Easter baskets. She made one for Kristen as well, don't worry. But uh, I, I, I feel like I was doing some really good
2: hard-hitting chocolate research last night. Yeah, I think it's important to get a little meadow with things Mm -hmm. and fuel your chocolate research with chocolate. I myself have also been enjoying the chocolate Easter eggs your mother (laughs) so generously gave to me in my own Easter basket. I don't know the last time my mom gave me an Easter (laughs) basket. So if I tell her that another person's mom (laughs) gave me an Easter basket. It might cause a little... Friction. Yeah, a little mom friction, so I don't know if I'll I'll fill my mom in on that, but uh, I'm a little surprised that it's taken us this long to get around to women and chocolate, because is there a more stereotypically women woman good than chocolate? Yeah, other than shoes, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, it's like shoes, Kathy comics, chocolate. There we go. And the last two are basically one and the same. Exactly. So we got to talk about women and chocolate because the question I wanted to know was what's up with the stereotype that women are just these chocolate craving monsters who, according to commercials, also really want to have sex with chocolate.
3: Interesting. Yeah, that uh, I don't think is it, that's been quite proven yet that we do want to have sex with chocolate, or that we would rather
2: have chocolate than sex. Oh, hmm. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I would like to kick this off though with a quote from Kathleen Banks Nutter, who wrote an essay on sort of the history of women and chocolate in the book "Edible Ideologies: Representing Food and Meaning." She wrote. What food is more easily gendered and eroticized than chocolate? So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're in for quite a treat with this podcast.
3: Yeah, I um, you know, the, based on the amount of chocolate that I crave, you know, if you, were, if you were to tell me in this podcast, Kristen, that something in women's bodies, whether it's their brain or their uterus— is programming them to eat more chocolate, I'd be kind of prone to believe you because I feel like I don't know too many dudes who are, like, super into chocolate who have to have chocolate on hand. Um, But I don't think that's what we're going to tell you.
2: No, uh, because also, Caroline, I'm going to go ahead and put it out there. I'm more of a salty tooth than a sweet tooth. If you were to Hmm. offer me a bag of potato chips and a bag of chocolate chips, (laughs) I would take the potato the potato, over the, the potato truck. product.
3: See, I have a weird, uh, a weird thing that I would love to get rid of, which is that after every meal that you know typically includes something savory, I have to have something chocolate to finish it off. Oh. Either that, or I've got to like shove a bunch of gum into my face so that I don't go after whatever's chocolate around me. I've been known to like go through the office just like lifting
2: up people's bags, like, "Do you have any? I need some." <laughs> Well, this podcast, this is kind of especially for you, Caroline. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, it's sounding that way. Mm -hmm. So let's go over just a few chocolate statistics to get an idea of what we're dealing with. Because the thing is, when it comes to women and chocolate and our desires for it, it seems like a lot of it is perhaps cultural because it's a lot more popular, for instance, in Europe than it is in Asia. So if we look just at the U.K., 91% 91% of women say that they eat it regularly, but at the same time, 87% of British men say that they fancy chocolate as yeah, well. Yeah, so they're over there shoving Cadbury yeah. stuff into their faces. But it's not its not a massive gender gap there. No
3: mm maybe, maybe women. Could it be that women are just made out to be crazy for chocolate, more so than men? <laughs> we'll find out, Caroline. Um, but over in Germany, they're the ones eating the most chocolate. And can I blame them when they have things like Kinder Eggs?
2: Kinder Eggs. Sally,
3: you know, speaking of my mother, Sally is a flight attendant. She flies to Germany. She smuggles back kinder eggs for me and has ever since I was a little kid. So I have all those little toys that you put together that are a severe choking hazard.
2: Basically, your mom gives you the best candies, Caroline. My mom is the Easter bunny. Oh Yeah. Sally. But moving away from Easter and looking just at Valentine's Day, Americans purchase more than 60 million pounds of chocolate for February 14th alone. And more than 75% of that chocolate will be given by men to women. So with that, you're starting to see what we'll talk about a lot more in terms of this gendered economy of chocolate buying and bestowing.
3: Hmm. And as far as cravings go, like the cravings I have on like a 10 minute by 10 minute basis throughout the day, women tend to report craving chocolate more than men do. But again, this is mainly focused on Western women. Although studies like the one that Kristen cited earlier about showing that there was such a small gender gap between men and women in the U.K. eating chocolate, most surveys do show that there is a negligible gender difference. But there is a difference in the guilt we feel. Women report more post-chocolate guilt after eating it compared to men, which I also kind of would own up to, like after I shove a bunch—well, okay, maybe way after I shove a bunch of chocolate, once the glow has faded— After I've shoved a whole bunch of sugary chocolate in my face, then I'm like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have done that.
2: Maybe it's just you coming down from a sugar high.
3: Yeah, and I start, like, twitching and
2: itching. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of those chocolate cravings, just one more aside on that. Looking at the Western women's chocolate cravings, you'll see a lot of reports that chocolate is the most widely craved food. But, again, if you that's probably focused on... Westerners mm-hmm. because if you look at a place like Egypt for instance there was a study finding that women and men both preferred savory and had more savory mm-hmm. cravings because it was more related to their local cuisine
3: right and and kind of along those same lines I, I mean I, I would argue you know that that I mean that makes sense that uh, based on what you typically eat you're going to crave certain things and you know I've noticed that the, the more I eat chocolate the more I crave it and the less I eat chocolate the less I crave it Yeah, and the more I eat potatoes, the more (laughs) I eat potato chips. Just raw. Kristen, it's so weird. She has this whole drawer
2: full of potatoes, and she'll just rip one out like an apple and bite into it. My podcasting secret, carb loading. (laughs) Constant (laughs) carb loading. Um, But before we get into where this women and chocolate connection really comes from, let's go back in time. And see where chocolate comes from, because within the history of chocolate, we start to see how it becomes more gendered as it moves from its origin in Mesoamerica to Europe. Right. Yeah. They actually
3: found uh, they, I mean, you know, the people who look for these things. Chocolate pirates. Yep. Chocolate pirates actually found cacao residue in pottery in Honduras that dates back as far as 1400 B.C. And. Just side note, um, in case you're wondering throughout this podcast, anytime we say cacao, I'm just going to think of the Portlandia sketch where cacao is the safe word. (laughs) But anyway, so, yeah, it dates back a long time in Mesoamerica, and the Mayans were drinking it by 300 A.D. And when the Aztecs, you know, like they did, conquered the Mayans, they started taking up the drinking of chocolate as well. And not only did they drink it, Aztecs supposedly ate it off each other's bodies during sex. They considered uh, the word for chocolate in their language is, is something along the lines of like chocolatel. It's there's a lot of consonants next to each other, but that basically translates to a holy fetish. That's how much they liked it.
2: That's so Cosmo of them. Oh.
3: <laughs> yeah, I can just I'm I'm picturing like an ancient Aztec cosmopolitan.
2: Hey, Aztec ladies, you wanna? <laughs> You want to get your man going? Get some chocolatel. <laughs> you want to avoid getting sacrificed this month? <laughs> Eat some chocolate during sex. Uh, so then, in 1519, we have Spanish explorer Hernando Cortez being exposed to this magical, sexy chocolate for the first time in the court of Montezuma. The second, and then by 1585, we have chocolate being shipped to Europe along with these ideas of its connections to sex, and very quickly from that, its connection to women. Yeah. By the 16th century, you have chocolate in Europe being conceptualized as an aphrodisiac.
3: Right, and uh, one Spanish physician, Antonio Colmonero de la Dizma, I'm sure I've said that wrong, wrote in the 17th century that chocolate vehemently incites to Venus and causeth conception in women, hastens and facilitates their delivery. And... I just have to that. I I say, oh, is that how babies are made?
2: Yeah, if chocolate causes conception in women, <laughs> thank God I'm
3: on birth control. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, in Europe, it's it's interesting to see that um, they took this 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 treat or this beverage or this sexy time making uh, item. And they ended up sweetening it to make it taste better because back when there were all these Spanish explorers in Mesoamerica hanging out with the Aztecs, one of them described it as a bitter drink for pigs. But then when it's transported over to Europe and it's sweetened, that's when it starts to become kind of a luxury item.
2: Yeah, it's important to remember that chocolate way, way back in the day is not like the chocolate Easter eggs that you might be eating that's super sweet and smooth. It was a pretty intense food that was often yeah it was often drunk and uh casanova also side note supposedly ate it to aid his virility it was mm. like yield viagra
3: or maybe he just kept it on hand for all those chocolate loving ladies that stopped by yeah maybe he that- just had
2: like a whitman sampler that he'd slide out maybe that was his secret
1: hello
3: lava
2: so when it comes, though, to the gendering of chocolate, this happens pretty soon after it's imported to Europe. According to Mort Rosenblum, for instance, uh, who wrote a book all about the history of chocolate, he says that once chocolate arrived in Spain, pretty quickly you have men drinking coffee and stronger stuff and women drinking the chocolate. And this was something, too, that reminded me of our research for uh, our episode on gender and coffee, was how with the old coffee houses mm-hmm. in England, it was mostly men and the women were at home drinking chocolate.
3: Right. Or how even now, if you walk into a Starbucks, you know, hearing from all of our listeners who work at coffee shops saying that, oh, the men walk in and they order espresso or black coffee and the women are ordering mochas. Mm hmm. Exactly. Interesting. Well, not only was it a gendered drink, but it was also sort of an elitist thing, too. When it made its way to Europe from the New World, It was pretty much solely reserved for the nobility of Spain, Italy, and France. It basically became a luxury where dainty ladies enjoyed it, and they transformed the enjoyment of chocolate into a highly refined social event. And this is coming from Jamal Fahim's thesis, Beyond Craving. And he points out that this is sort of the beginning of chocolate as a fetish that communicates social
2: status and upper-class femininity. And that upper-class femininity is going to continue to broaden its reach within the growing chocolate industry. As you see in the 1800s, how chocolate is transformed from this grittier drink into the type of chocolate that we think of today. thats a smooth bar. It's really sweet. It's uh, very tantalizing mm-hmm. for our senses. And this happens through a number of... Innovations starting in 1828 with a Dutch entrepreneur named Conrad Johannes van Houten. Nice. Who <laughs> figures out how to press those c- cacao, safe word, cacao beans to separate the dry cocoa from cocoa butter that makes chocolate less bitter and smoother.
3: Mmm. And by 1850, we have Englishman Joseph Fry mixing sugar with cocoa butter and making the first solid chocolate bar. So he's like, Joseph Fry is like the patron saint of... Of all that is good and happy in this world for me, yeah. I guess. I should wear like a necklace with his picture on it. You really should. Um, more developments come in 1879 when Rodolf Lint of, you know, Lint chocolate invented conking, a process that also smoothed
2: chocolate. And he actually used a machine that looks like a conch shell, hence conking. Ah, mm-hmm. clever Lint. Uh, so, because of all these innovations, by the early 1900s, you have guys like Henry Nestle, or would that be Henri Nestle, Milton Hershey, and others who are in the chocolate game. And so all of a sudden you have, at the beginning of the 20th century, this growing chocolate business. And what's interesting, too, as we were talking about the gender of it, if you look at the manufacturing of chocolate, all those chocolate bars that we're eating, a lot of times, especially in the earlier 20th century, it becomes gradually feminized as well. You have more and more women working in these factories. So not only are women becoming the target consumers of chocolate, they're also often the ones on the factory floors making the chocolate. So
3: every day it was like Lucy and Ethel
2: working the chocolate. Okay, great.
3: I'll just keep that image in my head as well as the the Portlandia sketch. So my brain is is at capacity. There is a darker side, of course, um, to chocolate making. And this is something that still goes on today in some parts of the world where they they grow cacao trees and make chocolate. And that is the fact that there are child labor issues that that we struggle with as well as environmental issues like rainforests being stripped, the soil being stripped of nutrients by planting these trees over and over again. So that has actually driven some companies to you know get into the fair trade thing, make sure that they're Having positive sources for their beans, basically.
2: Yeah, and, and those those sourcing issues are as relevant to chocolate as they are to you know, our conversation on coffee. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to focus so much on the manufacturing side of it, but rather the advertising of chocolate. Because you can actually trace women's history in the 20th century in the United States Through chocolate ads, essentially. Mm -hmm. Just by the way that chocolate is framed really shows women's level of social mobility and their relationship to men. It's fascinating.
3: Yeah, it is fascinating because this is coming, you know, this starts after the Industrial Revolution when you've got guys like Milton Hershey making a cheaper more uh, available chocolate bar. I guess he's like the Henry Ford of candy, uh, making it more available to people. And so once it is more readily available, you have to sell it. You have to make people aware that it is not something for just up crust elite ladies, that it's for everyone.
2: Yeah, and we already have these long-standing connotations of chocolate with sex and romance and luxury. And so what better... Thing to sell to dainty ladies. But in the Victorian era, depictions of women gorging on chocolate in the same way that we think of today, of uh, like, you know, just chocolate-crazed women, that would not <laughs> have been kosher. That would have totally violated... The female norms of the time, because this was at the time, too, when women would not have been, you would not want to be seen, like, eating a lot of food. Like, all-you-can-eat buffets, not okay for Victorian women to indulge in. So they were supposed to eat more, like ladies. So a lot of times, if you see Victorian ads for chocolate, the women aren't necessarily eating the chocolate in the ads but maybe holding it close to their mouths, just sort of tantalizingly.
3: <laughs> if you want to find a good way to get me to gorge on chocolate, it's to make me hold it away from my face for too long before I eat it. And then it's just like Cookie Monster. It's just over. But yeah, you couldn't with these with these uh, proper Victorian ladies, you couldn't show them overindulging. You couldn't have them exhibiting any type of desire. Because, again, chocolate being kind of an aphrodisiac, considered to be an aphrodisiac, tied in with wooing people and whatnot, if a woman is shown to not only gorge on it, but really want it and desire it, then it's getting hot up in those Victorian
2: homes. Yeah. But when you move into the progressive era, out of the Victorian era into the progressive era, you have the rise of the new woman. You have the suffrage movement taking place. You have women having a little bit more social mobility. They might be driving cars every now and then. What? Yeah, and, and the whole uh, rituals of dating outside the home are starting to take shape. And so chocolate advertisers are thinking, okay, how are we going to advertise to this new woman? How are we going to frame chocolate as something that she needs in her life? Oh, dating, gentlemen callers, what better gift for this new woman than a box of chocolates?
3: Right. It's kind of like when we talked about diamonds, how diamond advertising put it in men's heads that you're not a, a good... Husband, fiancé, boyfriend, etc. If you don't present a diamond and then that leads the woman to expect it and think, oh, well, you're not a good fiancé if you didn't give me a diamond. It's kind of the same thing in in this, uh, you know, smaller scale, less expensive. But it's kind of the same thing with chocolate. It's like, oh, well, he must not really like me.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's because they're courting female consumers, but ultimately courting men to buy the chocolate, saying, yeah. hey, what better gift for a gal than a box of chocolates, Johnny? Yeah, and there is... Um,
3: <laughs> yes, and they were addressing Johnny in a 1924 Whitman's ad that gave me pause when I read the copy for it because it sounds so opposite of the whole idea of of keeping chocolate in the Victorian era, era away from sounding too um, sensual. So in this 24 ad, they said, A visit to Pleasure Island is best when made by a man and a maid, and together they enjoy the plunder from this wonderful chest of chocolates.
2: Now, tell me that's not one big euphemism, right? right? Oh, yeah, chocolate ads are all euphemism. Yeah. I mean, even in the Victorian era, as you get creep closer and closer to the 20th century, you see how chocolate is still, it's still sort of symbolizing the... Physical consumption that may ensue after mm-hmm. you know proper marriage and whatnot.
3: Right. Yeah, I'm, I can't believe they were giving chocolate to women when they were just dating.
2: Well, in the nineteen twenties, you even have companies like Romance Chocolates just going ahead and putting it front and center, <laughs> like, "Hey, yeah, Romance Chocolates. What else are you gonna get for a for a date than, than these?" Right.
3: But, so in the 1920s, uh, as, you know, women are wearing shorter clothes, tighter clothes, they've they've shed the bustle and the corset, Lucky Strike begins advising women to reach for a cigarette instead of chocolate to keep that figure slim to fit into all of your new garments.
2: Yeah, this is around the time, too, when you start seeing alongside the suffrage movement, you also see uh, the first big wave of a dieting push mm-hmm. for women. And to me, this was really significant because I feel like today, even with all of this overt chocolate advertising, there's always still that underpinning of guilt. Mm-hmm. And we are never, like, advertisers never let us forget that we have female figures that, you know, we're supposed to keep in shape. Right. And so in the late 1920s, when this Lucky Strike ad comes out, you have women having the right to vote, more freedom. theoretically than ever before, but also, too, this is a time when you're also seeing the first kind of dieting push Mm -hmm. for women as well. There's always this balance between, like, ladies, go ahead and indulge, but not too much. Yeah. Feel bad about yourselves, but enjoy yourself, (laughs) but then feel bad about yourself.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it's a terrible yo-yo effect. and I mean, it is interesting to think about how, like, every time women are on the verge of getting more power in society and they're outside of the home, all of a sudden people are like, yeah, but you should probably be thinner and and remember not to eat too much. Well,
2: that's the thing. Uh, I think Naomi Wolf points this out in The Beauty Myth, which now is such an old text, but still uh, the point I think is uh, sort of time immemorial because she talks about how anytime, like you said, women are experiencing <laughs> the most liberation. You have the most sort of reactionary um, messages mm-hmm. regarding our bodies of like of, of dieting, yeah. of exercise. So moving from the 20s though into World War II chocolate becomes advertised as almost a sexual surrogate for absent soldiers which I found so fascinating. There was a 1943 Whitman ad for instance depicting a woman wistfully staring at a soldier's photo while holding a chocolate. So it was basically like Ladies, you know, old Johnny. Old Johnny's off fighting the Nazis. Mm -hmm. So while you're home, stay faithful and eat some chocolate. To tie you over. Yeah. Yeah. The jo- the joy you get from
3: chocolate is almost like having sex with a loved one.
2: Which is still the same kind of advertising we yeah. see today of like lone woman always with a background of billowing silk. Right. being Like, <laughs> I don't need anything but this chocolate.
3: Yeah. My hair would just be all over the place. But moving uh, into the 1960s and 70s, you know, Kristen and I were just talking about um, that whole control that body control of like okay well more women are in positions of power they're they're taking power for themselves we have the second wave feminist movement but we also alongside that at the same time have this whole concern about health and fitness and how do we advertise sweet treats to health
2: conscious feminists of this era (laughs) yeah so this is when you start to see the entrance of, and I hope this is, is not offensive to anyone's ears, but let's face it, they're masturbatory chocolate ads. Mm-hmm. Basically, instead, of, you could replace a chocolate bonbon with a vibrator in a woman's hands in a lot of these ads, and it would be the exact same thing. You wouldn't even have to change the copy. <laughs> and you also see the reentry entry too, of chocolate being... Uh, seen as this aphrodisiac, uh, for instance, this I got to kick out of this. In 1975, High Times, the Weed Culture magazine that we mentioned in our Women in Weed episode, uh, had a cover story on chocolate as an aphrodisiac because you have the flow chart of smoking pot plus munchies <laughs> equals chocolate, which then may or may not lead to groovy sex <laughs> intimacy true
3: intimacy and so here's the return of chocolate being considered an aphrodisiac but in the 1980s you also have the return of it being considered a status symbol so going all the way back to 16th century Spain when it was considered only for the elite so in the era of Gordon Gecko and Greed is good you don't just want to get your special girl a drugstore brand you don't just want to go and get Whitman's You have to get some like crazy boxed chocolate that's a million dollars to show that you can afford it and that she's worth it.
2: Yeah. In the 1980s, you see a 60% rise in dark chocolate sales. This is when you start, you know, hearing more about like, oh, dark chocolate, that's the good stuff. Right. And this is too a trend that seems to have continued today as Mm -hmm. you see more and more, not only uh, specialty brands of chocolate, but just the hyper specialization of dark chocolate too, is we're being told like, okay, yeah, no, it's actually good for you, so it's a little more okay to eat dark chocolate, but then you go to Whole Foods and you find these organic chocolate bars and it's like chocolate and bacon or chocolate and serrano chilies or something, all these kinds of exotic
1: mm-hmm.
3: flavor
2: combos, and they are crazy expensive.
3: Yeah, I, I almost hate to admit this because it makes me sound like a really big idiot but when I was Christmas shopping back in December, uh, I was going through this store and I was getting my niece and nephew mostly candy for their stocking. It was neat candy. I mean, it was like kind of fancy because, you know, they, they don't like anything that I get them. So I'm just like, I'll just get them candy. Ha ha. My brother will have to deal with it. Well, so anyway, I, I grabbed this like three pack of chocolate bars because I'm like how I didn't even I literally didn't even have the thought of how expensive could chocolate be? Because why would I? Chocolate's not that expensive, right? $30. $30. I know I'm the biggest idiot. Why did I not check that ahead of time? But I w- didn't even think to. It's because it was from like this... It was all dark chocolate, different types of it. And it was from like this teeny tiny like artisan chocolate place in San Francisco. And I just... The regret... I don't think I've ever felt deeper regret for anything in my life. And then did you sad eat the chocolate? I just couldn't. To- <laughs> I couldn't. I gave it to my boyfriend. I, I was like, I can't even like... Look at this. You just take it. Consider it part of your Christmas present. Talk
0: about chocolate guilt.
3: (laughs) Seriously. But no, I mean, I think that the dark chocolate thing does kind of point to or highlight interesting aspects of the whole chocolate guilt conversation. Because, like... We're supposed to feel guilty or we do feel guilty after we eat too many sweets, but then dark chocolate, like celebrities and magazines are preaching to us that like, if you eat dark chocolate, it has antioxidants. And so you will never get
2: cancer, but you're only allowed to have a square a day, or maybe a square every other day. Well, and, and, and then how many celebrity interviews with, you know... Beautiful, very thin fit women who say, oh, my weakness is chocolate. I mean, it's all, all these conflicting messages. Right. There is one thing that uh, Catherine Nutter points out about chocolate ads today is that the models in these ads clearly don't indulge in, you know, chocolate fests on the regular. Yeah.
3: Oh, chocolate fest.
2: Chocolate fest.
3: My mouth just started watering. I think I need to start that. Or maybe never, never. I'll burn it down. So from the 1980s where we see all of that fancy chocolate rising uh, to the 2000s, we see this whole self-empowerment message come about, one of which uh, came from Godiva in 2004 with their tagline, Every woman is one part diva, much to the dismay of every man. And I have no idea, side note, what that means.
2: I don't get that. The whole, just also... Side note to anyone in marketing listening: If you call me a diva, I'm not going to want your product. Yeah, <laughs> I don't get that. Who like who who thinks that women want to be want to be divas? I don't know. I'm sure there are probably some women listening thinking that that's fun, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I just think it's so hokey. I think it is hokey,
3: and I think when you have people like I'm just trying to think of an example, somebody like Mariah Carey, or you know, somebody who's like a stereotypically a high-demand, high-maintenance celebrity calling themselves a diva, that makes me want to call myself that even less. Yeah. So, But then you're telling me that I am one if I eat your chocolate. And Godiva, which really is like the Grey Goose vodka of candy, like it's... Ooh,
2: chocolate burn, Caroline. Yeah, well,
3: chocolate burn, because, you know, you take something that's really kind of basic and just mark up the price. Just putting a fancy ribbon or some, you know, geese on it doesn't actually make it worth the price
2: yeah there was an article i forget which one it was that we read uh, talking about how some chocolate experts like sommeliers of chocolate Mm -hmm. essentially tried godiva and they did not give it very high marks no what did they say like a box of sugar had been poured into candle wax or something something like that or that it was very chalky uh, they just weren't big fans. But I do think it's it's interesting how there's now that self-empowerment aspect. It's like the men have sort of been removed from these chocolate ads. So instead of the old dynamic of wooing men into buying chocolate to give to women, it's now Dove, for instance, telling us, Oh, ladies, treat yourself. You go buy chocolate for yourself. Stay at home. It just...
3: Stay at home and read the inspirational messages that are on the
2: inside of Dove wrappers, Right, and and give yourself a a, a gentle, you know, hug, and then go eat some yogurt. (laughs) But can we talk, though, more about this guilt issue with chocolate? Because this isn't something that came up in any of the papers, but what it sounded an awful lot like, the more we read about how chocolate has, you know, basically is sold to women as sex. It's the one acceptable sexy vice that women can have according mm-hmm. to society and yet there's that guilt undergirding it of like if you eat too much of it then boys aren't gonna like you because you'll have a chocolate belly it's so weirdly slut shamey it's yeah. like a, it's like a candy analog to slut shaming where it's like well ladies if you do too much of that then boys aren't gonna like you Am I, am I making too big of a leap? No, I think it's absolutely
3: parallel. I think there are some very weird, and there always have been, apparently, some very weird things going on with the way we look at chocolate and think about chocolate. And, you know, we have the Aztecs and the Spanish to think. But um, we'll actually get into some more ickiness behind uh, chocolate advertising when we come back from a quick
0: break. <music>
1: So, you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free zone.
0: The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime. So, when we left off, we had gone through the
2: history of women in chocolate and advertising. But one thing that we didn't mention as we were going through that 20th century timeline was that really the 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 main target of chocolate ads especially in the first half of the 20th century were exclusively white women mm-hmm. and there are some issues of race and racism and chocolate that we would be remiss to not address as well because you see for instance racial anxieties surrounding chocolate going all the way back to when it was first brought from the new world to europe
3: right there was this uh story that mort rosenblum who we cited earlier the author of chocolate a bittersweet saga of dark and light uh talks about in his book about uh, a woman by the name of madame di Savini writing to her daughter, warning her against drinking too much chocolate because she knew of another woman who drank it and her child came out black as the devil.
2: Yikes. Yikes, indeed. Okay. Well, and and there are all these chocolate anxieties, too, probably linked to this early idea of it as an aphrodisiac and being linked to sex where, oh, if you eat too much of it, you might become, you know, some kind of sex monster. <laughs> uh, but then, too, if you look at advertising in the 19th century, these chocolate ads typically portrayed women of color representing chocolate in its raw, unrefined form, whereas the white women were used to evoke a sense of luxury and romance, which is very problematic.
3: Right, yeah. Women of color being seen as the workers, Mm -hmm. white women being seen as the consumers, Going from raw to refined. There's all sorts of
2: really icky racial things there. Which makes sense because it ties so much into those issues of class and the evolution of chocolate and how it kind of became a mass-marketed good. Right. And I was hoping to find more scholarship on the, the, the race aspects of chocolate advertising, but unfortunately didn't because I feel like today still, and maybe it's just just advertising in general— but I still feel like you mostly, almost exclusively, see white women in chocolate ads. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're we're definitely not in any sort of post-racial utopia by any means, especially when it comes to discussing chocolate. The whole racist thing of calling women of
2: color chocolate is referring to well any person of color as being chocolate. Yeah, then you get into issues of exoticizing and eroticizing people of color by referring Mm -hmm. to them as chocolate again didn't find any you know deep research on it just a few blog posts here and there mostly from black women asking like please stop calling me chocolate because it's also notable that it's not like we refer to white women as vanilla except to indicate how boring we are when we have sex
3: uh, yeah. Well, there was that one Cadbury ad that was addressing Naomi Campbell by saying, move over, Naomi. There's a new diva in town talking about a chocolate bar. And so that's that's combining. We already had the diva conversation.
2: That's combining like the worst of all chocolate ads. Yeah. And she did not appreciate it. I would launched think so. an, an entire campaign. To get them to take it down, because I mean, some people are saying, "Oh, well, it's not you know, it's not racist. It's not." But it,
0: yeah, it's it's a
2: it's a little bit racist. Yeah. And then there is just the awkwardness of more recently, uh, Ferrero launched an ad campaign in Germany for their white chocolate,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: their like big commercial tagline was "Germany votes white." Ah. <laughs> to which Germans were like, "Hey, yeah, no, you remember." Uh, You remember Nazis and that whole thing? (laughs) Please don't do this. Yeah.
3: Oh, there are some people in some marketing department somewhere who were laid off after that, I'm assuming. Well,
2: what did you think? Did you see the Axe Dark Temptation ad where... I didn't. Okay, so what happens, I mean, it's an Axe body spray ad. So basically the premise of every single Axe body spray ad is that... The guy puts it on and then he just becomes irresistible this chick magnet. Right. To use the worst phrase on the planet. Um, so with the dark temptation ad, he puts on the body spray and it turns him into a chocolate man. And what do women love more than chocolate, Caroline? And so women <laughs> start coming up to him and you know eating away at his chocolate body. And then finally, it's revealed that oh, he's just like he's just a white guy under there. But the fact that it's called dark temptation and it's 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 fine because there's a white guy under there still you know just some just some issues just some issues kind of all piling up there together
3: yeah that is that is a pile of issues yeah
2: lots of lots of women eating away at your very core yeah lots of s- just symbolism loaded into one terrible commercial um but what though okay so speaking of women mm-hmm. eating men made out of chocolate uh-huh. yikes What about the science of this? Because we've talked all about advertising. We have clearly been sold this idea Mm -hmm. that chocolate is a food for women, that we love it more than anything else, including shoes. But what does science have to say about this? You would think,
3: right, that science would have been like, ladies, Every time you bite into a chocolate bar and you you get obsessed with the idea of eating more chocolate and you feel addicted to it it's because it's releasing all of these amazing things and you it's not really that it's they've found that there's not a huge like cause and effect chocolate serotonin link it's probably more that it chocolate is fatty and sugary
2: and it tastes real good. Yeah, there have been a lot of studies actually looking at the psychopharmacological effects of chocolate, essentially how groups of chemicals such as cannabinoids and chocolate uh, react in our brain and make us chocoholics, I guess. Mm -hmm. And the study results have kind of been mixed. They really haven't been able to pin down one specific chocolate craze chemical in there. So it's like, well, some people really like it and... I, I guess it's I guess it's good, um, but th- there was uh, this study called chocolate and cheese their effects on mood. Sort of looking at okay, well we know that it probably has something to do with the fat and chocolate. Right. So if we take a sweet and a savory like cheese and compare it, what happens? And their best conclusion was that it's probably the orosensory effect of eating chocolate. Mm. Essentially, we like how it smells, how it feels in our mouth. Just all of the sensory sensations of eating chocolate. The look on your face right now, Caroline, (laughs) I feel like you've been whisked away. I need to go find that Easter basket. (laughs) You need to go to Pleasure Island from the 1924 Whitman's ad. I absolutely do. Um, Speaking
3: of health stuff, one thing that does get brought up in women's magazines a lot is... If you like chocolate ladies, not only are you going to get fat, but you're going to
2: break out. Yeah, what about what about that connection?
3: Yeah, um that's something that I've always been worried about because I had so Many pimples when I was a young girl. And even now, my horm- I'm 30, right? Like, I shouldn't break out anymore,
2: but I still do. Oh, adult acne totally exists. Hello.
3: Hormones. Anyway, so they looked at whether, researchers looked at whether um, chocolate actually does produce acne. And again, the results were kind of mixed. But they did find that among the people who broke out, who did break out and experience acne, here's, here's a little bit of what happened. So after people ate chocolate and then were exposed to the bacteria that caused acne, they found that the blood was shown to have more markers of inflammation than the people who had not eaten chocolate. But they're just not sure what component of chocolate actually caused that inflammation, whether it is the fat or whether it is the sugar. I mean, we know that sugar causes inflammation in the body, but they're not quite sure about the acne link.
2: It seems like that's the story with everything regarding women and chocolate. Yeah. We're just not quite sure. Yeah. But here, have some chocolate in the meantime, right? While we try to figure this out. Uh, let's also talk about the stereotype of periods making women crave chocolate even more. Yeah, I,
3: I um, I was I'm gonna tell the truth here. I was a little dismayed to find out that there is no scientific link, really supporting the hypothesis that you crave chocolate more around your period because I swear, I don't know what it is in my brain, in the brain of Caroline Irvin, podcaster extraordinaire, I don't know what's going on, that, like, leading up to my period, I'm just, like, gorging on chocolate. And, like, as I'm stuffing the 15th candy bar on my face, I'm like, oh, okay, I see what's happening.
2: But I wonder if it's just not so much the chocolate As maybe a connection between menstrual cycles and comfort food. And some scientists say that, you know,
3: chocolate contains minerals like magnesium and iron, which we may be deficient in around our periods, things like that.
2: All I know is just, I just want it. And one of the reasons, though, why this period chocolate hypothesis has been debunked is because chocolate cravings don't diminish with menopause. If it was a period thing, then we would see a massive drop-off in women over 50 Mm -hmm. wanting chocolate, but that don't happen.
3: Well, maybe it's a mood thing, because I know, like, when I'm sick or hungover or just generally not feeling good, I want comfort food. I want, like, fried chicken and mashed potatoes and soup and, like, you know, salty, mushy, amazing things that have really strong flavors. Um, And so maybe chocolate just fits into that, like, making you feel good.
2: Well, speaking of making you feel good, the one thing that we do know about chocolate, specifically dark chocolate, is yes, the rumors are true. Dark chocolate does appear to have some health benefits. There was uh, a study published linking it to lower rates of stroke, coronary heart disease, blood pressure, and other cardiovascular conditions. But in an interview with the New York Times about this study finding... One of the lead authors said, please don't get us wrong. This doesn't mean that you can eat all of the chocolate that you want. We're just saying it's a correlation. It's not a causation. Right. Yes. Antioxidants, yes. Gorging
3: on chocolate until you throw up. No. Pretty much destroys any of the positive effects of chocolate. Although I was thinking about studies exactly like this one when Sally also gave me a solid dark chocolate Easter bunny. But, but you
2: know. mm, no, don't try to comfort me. I don't care. I don't yeah, I
3: don't <laughs> I don't feel guilt. I mean, I do, but I don't. But
2: see, that's good. That's great that you don't feel guilt. You shouldn't feel any guilt. If you want chocolate, eat the chocolate. I don't know. I just I'm so <laughs> yeah, I'm at the point of I'm just tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of seeing those weird ads. I don't get it you know?
3: Yeah, I don't. uh, It's the same things. Like, I'm surprised there's not more terrible chocolate stock photography. I mean, I know there is. But you know, the way we see women laughing over salads, the same way we see women eating yogurt, like chocolate is in that same ballpark as far as like, (laughs) women are so stupid. Look at what you're eating and how you're eating it. And like you're pinning all of your hopes and dreams on it.
2: Whereas men uh, are just told that they really want to grill meat. You want a hamburger? Have a hamburger. (laughs) Sloppy Joes. Sloppy Joes, not Sloppy Janes. Nope. Well, Caroline, I think we've now pretty much exhausted all of our chocolate knowledge. And now it's time to hear from listeners. I want to know if there are guys out there who are also self-identified chocoholics. I want to know who the ladies are, like me, who could care less about a bag of M&M's. Give me some Doritos, please. Mm-hmm. Or like any kind of chip. You get me. I'm saying savory rather than sweet. And anyone who, I, I don't know, what are, what are your thoughts on chocolate? Let us know. MomStuff at is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast Podcast or send us a Facebook message. And we have a couple of messages to share with you right now.
1: No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports.
2: So we've got a couple of messages here about our new male grooming episode. This one is from Jess, who writes, In my dating career, I despised male body hair. I thought it was just plain unattractive and probably wouldn't have looked twice at a hairy dude. However... A few years ago, I met a guy and fell madly in love with an extremely hairy dude. I mean, his back has started to connect with his chest hair level of hairy, Anyway, his hairiness drives me crazy too, but in a good way. I think a huge part of what we find attractive is just what we see on TV. The unknown is always scary. It's really frustrating because he, as you mentioned, many men are, is very self-conscious about his man fur. He has even asked me to tweeze hairs from areas that bother him. Once you associate body hair with a manly dude who treats you like gold, it's very sexy. Here's hoping for more hair representation in the media. Aww And for love
3: And I hope I hope that letter Makes that gentleman Feel better Who wrote us Very concerned About whether He'd find a date Yeah Don't worry about Your hairy bags Don't worry about it I have a letter here from Gretchen who wrote in about beards as well. And she said, while I can definitely see a trend in the popularity of beards on men on TV, I wonder if this is just a trend in certain social circles. Maybe it's because I live in Alaska that I have never thought of a beard as something trendy, just something some men had and others didn't. When I was growing up, my father sported a beard, and my husband grows one every fall and shaves it off in the spring. He does this as he works outside in below zero weather, and it often helps keep him warm, and when spring comes, it's too warm. I know other men up here who also follow this practice. I like my husband's appearance both ways, so whatever he wants is fine with me. On a recent trip this winter to London, England, we did take an interesting notice of the lack of beards there. In fact, my husband's caught the attention of one small boy who marveled at his appearance, exclaiming and pointing at him out of pure amazement. I also think if a man isn't well endowed in the facial hair department, what is wrong with being clean shaven if that suits him better? And then Gretchen has uh, some more comforting words for uh, our hairy men out there. She says, On the topic of other body hair maintenance, personally, I like a guy with some chest hair and find the idea of waxing it or shaving it off because that is what women like. Silly. So fear not, men. Some women dig it. So thanks, Gretchen. Uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners out there appreciate your viewpoint.
2: And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. discovery.com is our email address. And if you want to find links to all of our social media, all of our podcast blogs and videos, you should head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other
0: topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.